Welcome to Pazina Perspectives, brought to you by Pazina Investment Management, a global value manager known for our commitment to fundamental research and disciplined value investing. In today's episode, Senior Research Analyst Eric Hageman and Portfolio Manager John Flynn discuss our investment in Fresenius Medical Care, a leading global provider of dialysis products and services. Hey, John. Nice to see you in person today. Hey, Eric. Great to be here. Yeah, the last time we did one of these podcasts, I think I was wearing my pressed white shirt on top and sweatpants on the bottom, but today we're in full business casual. Back in the office. It's good (laughs) to be back. So let's talk about Fresenius, shall we? Let's. um, This is an interesting one. This is a newer addition to the portfolio post-COVID. And, you know, I was going back and looking before we sat down at, at Stock Analyzer and kind of what we saw naively that, that initially attracted us to this opportunity. And when you look at the history, um, and we'll get into what the company actually does in a minute, for sure, but you just see this kind of nice mid-teens margin history with some decent growth, good balance sheet, great cash flow, that all of a sudden earnings collapsed. Um, and I'd love for you to take us through kind of what you discovered about the business and kind of that history and then how you kind of unraveled a bit of kind of what was going on here. Absolutely. And I think that's well said that suddenly earnings collapsed. That's really uh, goes to show how Fresenius is a poster child for what we do. We're looking for good companies that have run into some kind of problem that's interrupting the normal course of business for them. And so I'll, I'll talk about what Fresenius does, and then we'll get into the investment opportunity. Mm-hmm. So Fresenius is the only global vertically integrated provider of dialysis services. Dialysis is the process of removing toxins from the blood of people whose kidneys have, have stopped uh, normally functioning. And the, uh, the, the, the name of the condition uh, that that people have who need dialysis is ESRD, end-stage renal disease. It's a condition that affects 0.2% of the U.S. population. I'll just limit the discussion to the U.S. for now, where Fresenius generates 70% of their earnings. Uh, So it's a relatively rare condition in that sense, but it actually drives an enormous amount of healthcare costs. In fact, it drives 20% of the Medicare budget which, uh, given that Medicare is about 5% of the federal budget, it ends up being that these ESRD patients uh, cost the the federal government about 1% of its total annual budget. That was really a shocking kind of piece of information when when that came out, just how how expensive dialysis is. Yeah. And, um, you know, it really, it goes to show uh, how how important and indispensable the service that they provide really is. So in the U.S., they operate 2,700 clinics. It's a near duopoly in the U.S. It's themselves and DaVita who each have 38% market share. And then the balance is a couple sort of significantly smaller companies and then one-off, you know, mom-and-pop local dialysis clinics. So, so what goes on at one of these centers? Dialysis patients need to be dialyzed to stay alive. Um, it's, a, it's a critical service for them. Uh, 
And they have to go into dialysis three times a week for about three hours per sitting. And you have to keep in mind that the, the risk factors for ESRD are things like age, obesity, diabetes, all kinds of other comorbidities. And so you're talking about a population that's already vulnerable and not necessarily that mobile in many cases. So the dialysis clinics have to be located within a radius of convenience to the patient population. But as we were just discussing, only 0.2% of the U.S. population requires dialysis. So in a low population density area where, you know, there may only be a handful of dialysis patients, that market is only going to support one clinic. Now, in New York City, which is a densely populated area, you are going to find a greater proliferation of dialysis clinics because the local population supports that kind of capacity. But in a low population density area, it actually ends up being a, a natural monopoly. And I think that that's one of the reasons why this has evolved into a, a duopoly on a national basis. That's great, Eric. Maybe you can talk a bit about what happened and, and kind of what presented this investment opportunity and why we saw margins in revenue coming down. Well, the opportunity was really entirely created by, by COVID. And there's a, there's a real human tragedy component to the situation in that when we think about the populations most affected by, by COVID from a mortality standpoint, you know, it's people who have pre-existing conditions, comorbidities who are immunocompromised in one way or another, and, and the elderly. And what you're really describing is the dialysis population. They're kind of the poster child of being vulnerable to COVID. And the, on, a, on a cumulative basis, since the beginning of COVID, uh, on the order of 5% of Fresenius's patient population has actually succumbed to COVID, which is a level of mortality that is completely out of whack with, with the norm uh, for them. And what that's done is it's, it's caused a, a significant decline in, in patient volumes, basically. Um, and because of the nature of the business, there's, there's an enormous amount of fixity in what they do. So if you think about it at the clinic level, the average clinic has about 80 patients and it operates on three shifts. So you're talking about, you know, 22, 23 uh, patients per shift. And if you lose one of, if you lose three patients out of the 80, you're basically losing one patient per shift. So when you're losing one patient per shift, you can't commensurately reduce your nurse staffing levels to offset that lost revenue. And this is a high margin business. It's a high margin business reflecting its criticality to the, the healthcare system and the sophistication of what they do. And so the decremental margins are, are quite high. And one of the things that we 
noticed immediately when we screened the stock was the, the extraordinary stability of margins historically. Because normally this is a business that has an inherent predictability. There's a certain level of growth to the patient population, and that's driven by demographics and increasing obesity rates and things of that nature, plus some normal course of business inflation, and that gets them to about 4% top-line growth, and they plan their CapEx plans are, are around that. And they're able to maintain fairly stable, roughly 20% EBITDA margins. They are not used to dealing with an environment where all of a sudden 5% of your patients are no longer coming in. And it's, it's obviously very sad as well, um, but it's created a, a massive financial headache for them. Now, what, what, we, what we see in the opportunity from an investment standpoint is that the mortality issue kind of solves itself with time because new patients are coming into being all the time. There, in fact, there may even be a tailwind to patient growth from, from long COVID because there's some evidence that, that COVID creates uh, risk factors for, for ESRD. But even setting that aside, the same demographic trends that were driving patient growth in the past are continuing. Um, and so at some point in time within the next two, three, four years, the patient population will actually get back to its pre-COVID baseline where it would have been anyway, because the unfortunate fact of the matter is that people don't live that long on dialysis to begin with. I mean, either they succumb to their condition or they leave the patient population because they've gotten a transplant, but they're basically only on dialysis for about six years. So in a sense, it's a pull forward of mortality, but over time, the volumes will get back to their pre-COVID trend line and that will organically resolve the, the margin headwind that they're, that they're dealing with. I wanted to jump on something you said earlier, um, just around the idea that you can't reduce the, the, the staffing, the nurses. And one of the things we read a lot about is just wage inflation, and, and certainly for, for, for nursing in this environment, um, it's, it's been a tough environment. So how is that impacting the company? Is that something that they can pass through to payers, or are they eating that in their margin today? Or kind of, can you talk a bit about those dynamics? Well, they are eating that in the margin today. And, you know, at the beginning of the, at the beginning of the, this period that we've been in, uh, the, the real headwind for them was the mortality issue. And there were some additional costs that they had to absorb associated with COVID. That was mainly in the sense of social distancing measures and paying people over time and, you know, extra spending for PPE and things of that nature. Much of that was offset by CARES Act money that they received from the U.S. government. But coming into the last couple quarters as, as inflationary pressure has picked up, that's been an entirely new set of issues that has been weighing on them. And, and so the underperformance of the stock through the COVID environment started out as a mortality issue and has now morphed into a mortality plus 
cost inflation issue. And this is another one where, you know, time will be our friend as investors in Fresenius, because each year they renegotiate a portion of their business. They are basically uh, subject to reimbursement rates that have been contracted in the past with large commercial managed care organizations. And the, the, the duration of those contracts is three to five years. So any given year, 20 to 30% of their business is being renegotiated so that reimbursement rates can reflect prevailing cost trends. And the same goes for the government portion of their business. Each year, Medicare will reset the reimbursement rate. Unfortunately, there's, there's a lag to that. So the next year's rate is not going to fully reflect the inflation that they've been absorbing uh, this year. So this is an issue that is going to take several years to resolve itself. And as we said at the beginning, this is really a poster child of the kind of situation that we invest in. A good company that's trading at a very cheap valuation because it's dealing with a problem that really is going to take several years to work itself out. And I think that that goes to something fundamental about the way that we invest. What the market doesn't like about Fresenius right now is that we don't really know when these headwinds are going to abate. Even with respect to mortality, that had been getting better, and then it got worse in the third quarter, and there's uncertainty about where that goes in the fourth quarter as we get further into the, into the winter. Because if you remember last year, the, the, the spike in mortality wasn't really until like mid-December onward, and then it just took off, took off like crazy, and they still have a decent amount of their patient population that's unvaccinated. So we don't really know. We also don't know where inflation is going to peak out, when those pressures start to abate or, or get better. And we don't know precisely at what rate they can renegotiate their contracts to get back to their historical margins. But if you wait for a catalyst to appear, it's already going to be reflected in the price, and that's going to limit the alpha opportunity in investing in the stock. So what, what we do is we invest in situations where the precise magnitude and timing of the catalyst is not necessarily known, but we know that the catalyst is coming. We know that patient population is going to continue growing, and we know that over time they renegotiate rates. We know that freight costs are not going to remain seven or eight times what they were pre-COVID. More container ships are going to be you know, added to the global fleet, and, and these pressures will abate. We just don't know precisely to the quarter when that's going to happen. So, Eric, those are great points about you know, that we are investing early, pre-catalyst, if you will. We can see what the catalyst might be potentially on the horizon, but we're not necessarily to the date knowing when they're going to happen. And I think that kind of highlights another part of our process that's really important, and that's understanding the liquidity profile and the balance sheets of, of the businesses we invest in, because you have to be able to get through the, the challenging times to emerge to the other side. 
Um, we, all, we often say that you know, debt is kind of the enemy of the value investor because you can be right about your business analysis. Uh, and if you have a liquidity event in the interim, it doesn't matter because you're diluted to nothing, um, even if you were right about the long-term outcome. And in this particular case, I think what's, what's really interesting is even with these headwinds, the cash flow at Fresenius is, is fantastic. Um, and so it really allows you to bridge this gap as we wait for things to normalize, if you will. Um, and, and, and I'm glad you brought up that uncertainty because I think it is key to really embracing these types of uh, value opportunities. I mean, we always say you got to run to the fire to get the opportunities. You can't just kind of sit on the sideline. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think if you had a business that earned a 3 or 4% operating margin and revenues are down 5%, they, you know, depending on the fixity of the business, they might go into a loss-making position. But Fresenius has a 20% EBITDA margin to start with. And so the looking at the last 12 months through the third quarter of, of uh, 2021, I mean, we're in the most strained period that they've been in in literally decades. Uh, the, even in the global financial crisis, they didn't experience anything like this because mortality wasn't affected by that. Uh, even in this environment, they've been generating 1.3 billion euros of free cash flow. And that's on you know a market cap of 17 billion euros at this point. So it's actually an 8% free cash flow yield on you know, very stressed earnings at this point. I wanted to change tactics a little bit here and kind of, you know, I'm, I'm putting on my my hat from when I covered managed care and thinking about s some of the trends out there. And, and as you mentioned, this is such a big cost um, to the, the Medicare budget, to the, to the managed care companies as well. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about value-based care. Um, and kind of right now, it's kind of a fee-for-service model. But, you know, what is the company saying about value-based care? How does it impact them? Is, is this an opportunity? Is this a threat? Like, when we think about a changing world in healthcare, how does Fresenius fit in? Yeah, and from a process standpoint, there was obviously researching the, the thing that created the opportunity, which is what we've been discussing. But then as I researched it further, there's all these longer-term interesting opportunities that the company uh, has over over the next five, ten-year time frame, which really lines up with our typical holding period of three to five years. What value-based care means is that if the service provider can extract better medical outcomes at a better cost than under a fee-for-service uh, system, then they will share in those economics with the payer. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't because the whole idea of value-based care is predicated on the idea that the service provider has some ability to extract better outcomes from, uh, from, from the, the patient relationship. And so if you think about a doctor treating, let's say, a, let's say a general practitioner treating somebody who is dealing with a cigarette addiction, 
you know, I mean, the doctor does, you know, maybe he sees the patient once a year and he can lecture him on how bad it is to be smoking or whatever. Uh, but he doesn't really have a whole lot of leverage over, over the patient and can't really do a, a ton about that. On the other end of the spectrum, think about dialysis, which is a really interesting opportunity to roll out a value-based care approach to, um, to how this stuff is paid for. The dialysis provider is seeing the patient three times a week for three hours at a time. They know where they live. They can figure out if something is going on with them, if they're not showing up to their dialysis, or if they've started showing up late or leaving early. They are the first line of defense against the potential uh, emergence of complications. And when you think about, so we were talking about how much ESRD patients cost uh, to take care of. It's about $90,000 a year. Only half of that, still a lot of money, but only half of that is the actual dialysis itself. The other half is everything that happens when things go wrong, mainly hospital stays. So if, if the dialysis provider can reduce hospital stays, they are actually taking a big chunk out of, out of the cost, the total cost of, of care. And so what, what Fresenius has done is begun developing systems to contract with MCOs, the managed care organizations, United, Cigna, et cetera, to move their contracts from fee-for-service onto value-based care. And, you know, as we were talking about with the cost inflation, the, these, these contracts have to run their course, and we're still in early days of, uh, of that. Next year, a, a U.S. government program is going to roll out. And so that's actually going to be the first place that we can that we can really test it in uh, in scale uh, with Fresenius. But the basic idea is that they earn a profit margin on providing dialysis, and then whatever they can save on the non-dialysis costs, they will share in those economics, and that's incremental margin for them. And it's good for Fresenius, and it's also good for patients because. Clearly, what we're talking about is improved medical outcomes. So you really have a win-win here. And, and I think, you know, from an ESG standpoint, um, it, it's just another thing that stands out uh, on the stock is just the, the social aspect. And, you know, not only is this a, you know, a life-saving treatment they're providing, but there's a lot they can do to even improve outcomes for their patients prospectively as, as we, we move forward. Uh, one other thing we can touch on here at, along those lines, I think, is home dialysis, right, where you mentioned at the beginning uh, they're vertically integrated. So not only do they have the clinics, but they also have the machines and they are involved with home dialysis as well. Maybe you want to touch on that. That's right. Home dialysis is another really exciting, albeit long-term, opportunity for, for Fresenius. Uh, a couple years back, they acquired Next Stage, which was the leading manufacturer of home dialysis machines, and that has uh, been a, a, uh, a major addition to their overall 
product portfolio. And the, the, the promise of home dialysis is, is really twofold. I mean, one, from a convenience standpoint, not every patient can do it. You, you, you need to have some, some help at home to be able to set things up, and it requires being you know, relatively fit. But it, 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 it allows people to dialyze overnight, which means that they can, if they're still employed, they can keep going to work without having to forego three hours a day, you know, three times a week to go do dialysis. And most people would rather be in the comfort of their own home doing this rather than going to the clinic. I mean, you know, some people may, may like the social element of having a place to go, but um, there is a lot to be said for what home dialysis offers to, to patients. Even more importantly, home dialysis has the potential to improve patient outcomes, particularly insofar as it allows patients to dialyze every other day more easily. So we talked about how patients go in three times a week. That's, that's less than every other day. Where there's a gap, let's say somebody is dialyzing Monday, Wednesday, Friday in center, it's between Friday and the following Monday that they are at the greatest risk of a complication, a heart attack, um, some, something that sends them to the hospital. So home dialysis actually has the opportunity to reduce hospitalizations, improve patient outcomes, and again, another win-win for both patients and, and shareholders of, uh, of Fresenius. And by the way, from an investment point of view, we discussed earlier the effect on clinic profitability from even a small decrease in patient visits. So I just want to be clear, when a patient goes on home dialysis, they're still overseen by a nephrologist tied to a clinic, and the economics of home dialysis make it neutral to positive for Fresenius. So while a home dialysis patient does worsen clinic utilization, they're making up the revenue outside the clinic. And that's different from losing a patient completely, not to mention when it's you know, 5% of your patient population in such a short period of time. Longer term, what this gradual transition to home dialysis also does is it slows the pace of new clinic buildouts, which will reduce the CapEx needs of the business and increase cash flow. And I wanted to kind of put this, bring it back to the portfolio perspective and talk a little bit about just put the valuation in context. Um, you know, when we think about Fresenius, normal earning power, kind of in that normal environment, once we're able to adjust for pricing and hopefully the, the, the morbidity around COVID is beyond us. Um, the company's at around eight and a half times normal. Um, and that compares to a universe of about 17 times for the midpoint. So a very substantial discount um, to, to the universe. And, and as Eric's laid out, a pretty compelling opportunity. So Eric, I just want to say thank you for, for, for sitting down today. Um, it's really fun to do this in person and to uh, you know, get to look each other face to face as we do this and look forward to doing it again. We'll do it all over again next time. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Pazina Perspectives. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. 
And for more insights on value investing, visit our website at www.pizina.com. That's www.pizena.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter.